We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Happy Sunday. I'm Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. On the other end of the line, as he is every Sunday night, Weldon Rodenberg, former Ole Miss recruiting specialist, going to talk some Ole Miss Austin P. Probably do a lot more of, you know, what we did through camp and do a lot of, like, I guess, reflecting on Ole Miss from a personnel standpoint, just because obviously it was Austin P. Game is what it was. And then we'll bounce around the SEC a decent bit because I think there's some conversations to be had about what we saw over the weekend and how it pertains to Ole Miss's ability um, and their standing in the SEC West. Um, There's something Weldon and I were talking about off the air. So we'll get into a lot of different stuff, do some college football talk, probably a little lighter show today just because, again, the game kind of warranted. But before we get to that, I want to remind you the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. They're the inventors of the Skybox Major Center Rule, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the industry. Look, this is pretty simple. Some of you out there listening had to pay the man today, whether you're listening Monday morning, Monday afternoon. If not, you're probably going to launch a Hail Mary on this Sunday night, or excuse me, Monday night game, and probably going to have to pay him tomorrow. You don't want to pay the man. You want the man to be paying you. Skybox is the easiest way to do that on a consistent basis. These casinos, these books, they're not built on losses. You are not smarter than them. Skybox can help you be smarter than them. Go check them out. They have a picks package to fit your price range. You can do a full season long pass for all sports. You go month sports centric, week long sports centric. Hell, try the daily pass. If you just want to test them out for a college football Saturday or an NFL Sunday, I promise you that little $10 teaser you put down, or I say teaser, that's probably bad terminology, teasing the Skybox sports picks package with a one-day pass for 10 bucks, eight, if you use the promo code RIPPY and get 20% off, you're going to end up buying a month-long pass or a season pass. I can promise you that. Just go ahead and do it. You want the man to be paying you. You want to be texting him being like, hey, man, can we square up? Where's that extra money? I'm going to go buy a new driver, going to go buy whatever the hell you want to buy with it. It's your money. You just don't want to be giving away your car cold, hard-earned cash. And Skybox will help you hold on to that and make some money. Check them out. They crushed it on the NFL this weekend, college football in full swing, killing it on NASCAR. Need to update the NASCAR stats as I pretend to know anything about NASCAR. But check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Let them know we sent you by using the promo code RIPPY, and you'll get 20% off any purchase. Go ahead and get a picks package 
and uh, let the professionals lead you to profit because Skybox will do that better than anyone else in the industry. I'm happy to have them a part of the podcast. Also, podcast brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Greg needs no introduction. Hope you guys hit LB's this weekend for your football watching needs. Maybe some of you hit the Grove up. Uh, had a couple texts uh, from people over the summer getting into football season asking if Greg can help them with some uh, with some food for their tent. I know a lot of you people get around the uh, whole open flame loophole in the Grove. If you're a cop listening to this, turn this off now. I know it's done. I know it can be done. I've seen girls in the Grove. Greg can help you out. Check them out, LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. If you are a Rippy Rights newsletter subscriber, that's rippyrights.substack.com. Just type in your email. You get a newsletter for me three to five days a week and discounted meats. You get a 16-ounce prime strip for 15 bucks right now, plus a $5 pack of sausage. That's a hell of a way to start a football Saturday or Sunday. Check them out. Oxford's so lucky to have LB's. All kinds of great sausages, fresh seafood, lane train special, Keith Carter special, Good stuff to sous vide, filet burgers, really just name it. You need to go find your own favorites at LB's because Greg is the man and has really started and maintained something special with LB's in Oxford. Check them out, LB's University Avenue, across from Kroger. All right, back to Weldon. Here we, here we go. Let's roll. Uh, what's up, man? You had a wedding this weekend. How was that? It was great. Good time. Uh, still got to catch up on enough football So because it was a little bit later in Eastern time zone. Kind of changes up things. I've never really – thought about it that way but uh all good uh a quick hoot at to all those listening what an absolute ass beating earlier <laughs> i get to that in a little bit i got on my plane it was 17 to 3 at halftime got off 38 to 3 so i still need to go back and see what the hell happened there but i pity those truly i pity nfl fans who don't have sean Payton as a coach because it must be so miserable being so mediocre whenever you see this guy does what he does. I mean, it's amazing. I am sure there's a faction of the Ole Miss Rebel Grove community message board. Anyone who listens to this podcast could probably have deducted you were a Saints fan just from being a BR guy growing up. But, like, you're going – if not, you ingratiate yourself well because I noticed there's a lot of Saints fans on the board. We can absolutely get in some NFL at the end. This was the first – I was actually about to go partially there next – so today was the first – I watched the game again, the Ole Miss game. Yeah. And then today was the first sit on the couch, watch a ton of red zone and not move for hours. And, man, did I miss it. That Like, we had it last year, and I guess it didn't really affect a ton because I'm sitting on my couch watching Scott Hansen go to, you know, the Pinto and Octo box. And, like, whether they were fans in the stands didn't make that – didn't make a ton of difference. But it just felt different to me having full stadiums again and the full NFL experience. Last year was just so weird, but damn, I missed it. Today was fantastic. We'll get into some NFL off top. Huge win for the Saints. I know you – I saw you tweeted something about it earlier, but, like, I agree. The demise of the Saints was greatly exaggerated. I was a lot more bullish on Jameis than I think other people were just because under Dirk Cutter and I think one year of Bruce Arians, like, even that last year, he threw for 5,000 yards and 30 touchdowns. The only problem was he threw for 30 picks. And, like, right. if you believe Sean Payton can take out a third of those, and then maybe he whittles down five more just from being a little older and more mature, and he can see now, which seems like a plus. I was high on them, and I think they're going to be good. I know it's week one, weird results and all that, but I, I really think they can challenge Tampa for that division. I think they're going to be good. No, I mean, I definitely think they're going to be really – Good. I was high on them. I wasn't ecstatic because, you know, the bill came due on some of our uh, 
on our guys we couldn't pay and we had to make a few trades, a few adjustments. But at the end of the day, we have one of the best, we have probably the best offensive line in the NFL, an incredibly like mature front seven on defense, a capable quarterback and Sean Payton. And at the, that in the NFL coaching means so much, you knew Jameis was going to be better with Payton. So we'll maybe we'll touch on that later. Not that important, but who that? Yeah, no, I was saying – I just find it interesting. Last thing I'll say on that, too, I'm not – I don't consider myself a Saints fan. I actually probably followed the Titans more so than anything, but I'm very yeah. much a red zone guy. Like, the Titans losing, which they did in terribly embarrassing fashion today, does not, like, ruin my day. Like, I'm very fair weather when that comes to that. But yeah. this – I find the Saints very interesting, but what you were talking about, like, with the bill coming, dude, one of the things you can't do when you have, like, expensive tabs coming in the future is miss on the draft. And they said this a lot on the broadcast today – like they haven't missed on the draft. Their 2017 draft class, Marshawn Lattimore, Ryan Ramchek, Marcus Williams, Alvin Kamara. And then I think there's another guy they couldn't keep who's a Trey, captain. H- Trey Hendrickson, who yeah. had like a double digit sacks last year, who they just physically could not pay, had to go to the Bengals. I mean, it's really amazing. And then, of course, they started Paulson Adebo, a third round pick from Stanford, didn't play a snap last year, opted out, and he started in did more than hold his own. He intercepted Aaron Rodgers. I mean, these guys, Jeff Ireland and Mickey Loomis, they're the best in the business, truly. Better than the Patriots, better than really anybody else at what they do. And it's it's just so much fun being a fan of this team, especially with the success we've had. Of course, heartbreak comes with that as well. But they look to be just right back at it again with no issue. Yep, Saints have been fun for over a decade, boarding on two at this point. And really, that's all you can ask for, you know what I mean? In, in a league yeah. that's designed to have parity, it's 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 a pretty amazing run. And I think there'll be a day, like, we'll look up, and if the Saints ever get another Super Bowl, we'll look up in four years and we'll get all the columns about how Sean Payton never got his due. Like, if that had happened with Breeze last year, all those columns were coming. You know, they just lived in the same diocese as the Patriots. But there's the second most consistent franchise in the NFL over that span. I don't think you can argue that. Yeah. Kind of going, reeling it back into the, uh, I, I was about to say amateur ranks, but that's not really the case these days, nor was yeah. it actually ever. Ole Miss beats uh, Austin P 54 to 17. There's a number of places we could start with this. I, I don't mean to start on a bad note, but if you're just going to kind of give an overall, you know, macro view of the game, I wrote down a couple big picture thoughts that have a lot of like smaller stuff that will hammer around and get through the first one I got to was through two games. And it's easy to clean it up when you're easier to clean it up when it's not costing you games. This team is penalized a lot. And some of it, a decent bit of it came on the offensive side. I say decent bit. I thought the dumber penalties were on the offensive side. The defense got screwed with a couple PIs and stuff, but they have like 250 something yards of penalty yards through two games that's not great. They're 2-0. and They've looked fine. But do you make anything of that? And then I guess to formulate that into a real question, what is that – like what do you do at practice to combat that? I mean, it's tough. A penalties is kind of – it's not a luck thing because, you know, the targetings are targetings. And I think that's really, you know, added to that 250 yards. You just got to – it's just more sound. You know, you got to be focused – I cannot imagine, especially with just one practice, that they were fully all in, you know, zoned in on Austin P and their assignments and blah, blah, blah. But there's things you can practice. You know, you do drills, you do defensive turnover drills, and, you know, 
you work on one v ones where you're not, you know, hugging the receivers and stuff like that. Offensive line individuals. Uh, there, I mean, there's things you can do, but at the end of the day, you just kind of have to know your role, do your assignment, get rid of all the penalties. It's more of a mental thing than it is a teachable thing. And they'll get there, but they only had one practice, right, this week. Yeah, so one real one. I think it was a Wednesday deal, and then obviously the rest of it's normal. Like that, again, two games in five days is tough. Right. Uh, they had some bad penalties against Louisville. I think Bryce Ramsey had a really bad holding call. You know, you just got to be in the right place at the right time. But I'll, I think we'll preface this with all we talk about Ole Miss today. It was Austin P. And they won, and they won in comfortable fashion. So the rest is kind of icing on the cake. Yeah, and I'm not gonna. They had tw- they finished with 12 penalties for 130 yards in this one. It's I just want to make sure. It's very bad. That's yeah. No, it's not great. I just no. didn't have that number up in front of me. That's not doesn't sound great either when you say it. <laughs> no, it's actually worse than I realized. But still, it, like I, everything I said before, still not still counts. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And the Austin P aspect of it, you're exactly right because. And look, I'm not going to pretend to know like what Austin P is comparatively, but they are a top 20 program in the FCS and have been historically pretty good. Like they had some good years under Hudspeth, and then this new guy seemed to have carried it over decently well. I just say all of that to say in a day and age where you're seeing more and more bizarre results in terms of smaller schools hanging around with bigger schools, whether that's FCS or just group of five schools, you know, Ole Miss not playing well and really just kind of putting the hammer down from the get-go. Uh, is obviously a pretty good sign because, I mean, things have gotten weird, right? I mean, Washington lost to Montana. Uh, Oregon State had some trouble. They go through the Pac-12 in week one. I, I don't have it off the top of my head. But like, yeah, yeah, just brutal. And then tar- oh, Oregon turns around after having trouble with Fresno and beats Ohio State in the big house. Point being, things can get weird, and Ole Miss put that game to bed from the get-go. I guess we'll start from a personnel and, like, who played and who didn't standpoint. I'm not sure how much this should be made of this at all. But Orlando Umana nor Jake Springer played today um, or yesterday, excuse me. I, I don't know. I don't actually didn't even know what Springer's injury was. That's not something that I, I guess that slipped past me during the week. And I say slipped past me kind of somewhat, uh, I'll put it asterisk somewhat by that, just because Kiffin's injury thing is a little bit weird. Um, Orlando Umana out with an upper body injury. That seemed to me to be more of a product of, He'd been banged up in camp two games in five days. You don't need him. Again, I'm asking you to speculate here, but it kind of on that pattern, if that's Alabama, he probably tries to give it a go. Yeah, I would imagine both of them at least try to give it a go. I mean, you would eventually have to give an update on a guy if he's out for an extended period of time. I know Kiffin's been weird about it, which is He kind said of they, they should both come back next week. He expects them back next week. Then they're going to be totally fine. I think, like we said, preface everything with it was Austin P. If you've got a small injury, like see what you got with some other guys. You know, there's a lot of young guys that are going to try to compete for some playing time throughout this ceiling, this season. Sorry. Uh, no reason to risk it, especially. I mean, we're, I'm sure we'll get to Tulane, but if you think that's going to be a cakewalk, it, you are wildly mistaken. I mean, just look at the line. I mean, there's re- that's a real football team. They got to get ready for them. So getting through this injury free and issue free was the most important. Yeah, and I imagine having, like, you know, you saw some Bryce Ramsey, and I believe during camp a little bit of Caleb Warren at center. And if you have Umana, who had, you know, been banged up to start the year, and obviously the goal would be to get the kid completely healthy and not have him be banged up. But if that's someone that started the year with some sort of nagging injury, 
I imagine it would be incredibly beneficial to just see what Bryce Ramsey looks like in game action at center and kind of see what you have. Because, and I don't think he was a disaster. He had a holding penalty early, but from best I could tell from a very untrained eye in terms of offensive line play, he seemed to do fine against an inferior defensive line. Whereas I guess if it had been a disaster, let's just say he just couldn't do it. Now you want a game by 40 points and you can figure out some sort of contingency plan should Romano go down again, right? That's probably the important part. That is exactly – that's everything you said is correct. You, you see what you got. You're going to win the game no matter what. You have no risk of playing a few guys that are younger and, you know, need to see what they can do with extended snaps. So that, I'm sure that was part of it. Jumping around really to just kind of the obvious, Ole Miss goes up 14 nothing quick. I think the first two touchdowns were to Drummond. I can't exactly remember, but he has another big day. Six receptions, 107 yards, two touchdowns. Jonathan Mingo, seven catches, 99 yards, two touchdowns. Really, both of them should have had another touchdown. Mingo had a deep ball that he caught in the end zone and actually made a pretty good grab on something that was bobbled that was over, was called not a catch, which to me looked like a catch, but neither here nor there. And then Austin P early in the game went with a zero blitz on a fourth down and uh, Drummond really just kind of got lazy with the football. Corral hit him with a pretty decent deep ball in the end zone and he caught it. And as he was going to like tuck it away and transfer credit to the Austin P kid, didn't give up on the play and poked it out. And lazy is the wrong word. Drummond looked very casual with that ball. And like that, obviously that's the type of shit that probably pisses Kiffin off. But point being, you could make an argument. Each of them could have had, you know, three touchdowns a piece. I will start with Drummond because this is two weeks in a row. One of the things he said since we spoke last was he got, I love this This is honestly kind of refreshing because you never hear this from guys. He got asked if he was like surprised by anything that happened in the Louisville game. He was like, yeah, I was surprised they threw the ball to me that much. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't think I'd get that many targets, which yeah. is refreshing. But after hearing you talk about him last week and talk about the hands, it's it really is. He He's as shorthanded as anyone. I mean, he had a couple catches over the middle where he took a pretty good pop. And, like, it wasn't even like a, oh, wow, he held on to that. He honestly made it look easy. I, I guess to actually formulate a question to give you something to work with here, it appears a very apparent, as confident, as comp, excuse me, complicated as Kiffin and Lebby's offense maybe seem sometimes, they really just try to get the ball in terms of who they figure. Like, they identify they have a mismatch. They try to get them the ball. And through two games, Drummond appears to be that guy they're favoring a lot. Yeah. I mean, they've got him all over the place. And, you know, they ran that touchdown against Louisville. That was the same fourth down play, I think it was, where he went for 50 yards or whatnot. So they definitely scheme guys open. There's a base offense as well where Matt makes the reads. and. Sometimes Drummond has been the open, easy read, especially out of the slot. Um, and he's played really well. He's taken advantage of all the snaps he's gotten and the targets, sure-handed. It's kind of hard to tell from the TV screen, but if you see Drummond in person, he has an incredibly strong, thick lower body. It, he's tough to bring down. You know, he's not easy. He's he's bigger than he looks. He's obviously not that tall, but he, he's played really, really well, and I don't think it's – Again, I know people have like, where is Braylon Sanders? It's nothing to do with Braylon. It's just they're making the right reads, opening it up. Drummond's open. Matt's going to hit him. He's not going to care who gets the ball. And I think it'll, that'll be the case for the rest of the season as well. So maybe Mingo got his yesterday. You see how it works. You know, they spread it out, see who gets it. Yeah, you're dead on with that because Kiffin said part, essentially that in his press conference afterward. Was he got he got asked a couple of questions about the receivers, and one of his answers 
regarding like who would he like he's like if I had to guess who would have had the better numbers at this point I would have probably just gone Braylon based on what we saw in the scrimmages but that's sort of what the reads and the matchups have dictated so far is that it's been Drummond and so I think you nailed it there where they do try to scheme guys open but some of it's exactly just the reads and actually one of the notes I had written down was and this is kind of working in the inverse one of the Mingo touchdowns was over I don't remember the route he ran it was over the middle of the end zone I think it was like a 20 something yard touchdown again without being a savant knowing defensive coverages he had Drummond lined up in the slot next to him and the safety focused a ton of attention on Drummond going over the middle and Mingo ran a slightly deeper route and really just kind of slipped by that safety who ducked up slightly to kind of step in and help out with Drummond with whoever the slot corner was and Mingo ended up open as a result. Again, whether the responsibilities aside, I'm not going to pretend to know, you know, that's exactly what they were looking for. The, the, you know, the safety was in a no win situation. I'm not saying any of that, but it with Drummond playing the way he did and then being able to line him up different places, particularly in the slot, that's gotta help both Sanders and Mingo to a degree, the amount of attention that he's going to garner going forward, I'm guessing. Yeah, it will. And a lot of those things are just, you know, maybe they catch the defense in a coverage that the double post works, you know, the safety's figuring out, okay, do I go deep or short or whatnot? It's probably just a win play on the offense, just pick the right one. But with his ability to be so versatile, you know, defenses are going to be like, all right, well, where the hell is 11? Like, we got to figure out where he's at and then kind of dictate what they're doing off of him not because he's Elijah Moore or A.J. Brown, but because he's all over the place. You know, they just got to figure out what to do with him. And I think that throughout the season, you'll see him be all continue to be all over the place. But um, I don't think that will force Levy and Kiffin to start force feeding him the ball like they kind of would do with Elijah last year. But he's been hell incredibly effective in everything he's done so far. And to add on top of what you're talking about, there has been, I noticed a decent bit with Louisville was they were really focusing a ton of attention on Braylon Sanders, which is part of why you've probably seen a lot of this Drummond emergence early on in the season. And you figure eventually, I mean, hell, if Drummond keeps popping folks for a hundred yards a game, that's going to have to switch at some point, unless these all football coordinators turn, turn into idiots, which I don't think they are. They're paid a lot of money to do this thing. Like eventually some of that's going to switch. The last thing I'll ask you on Drummond because you mentioned, I'm glad you mentioned this. You talk about him having such a strong lower body. I thought about doing a corny, uh, a newsletter segment where like caught like the sexy drop of the week after we were talking about that play that Corral ran last week that didn't count where it was kind of like the fake draw kind of jump pass thing. Like it was like, that was just kind of an X's and O's showcase in their fifth drive of the game. I believe it was Drummond's second touchdown. So I guess he didn't score the first two touchdowns. He they lined him up in the H back position and ran some sort of false action kind of going. There was like a run to the right, and then he really just kind of acted like he was pulling's not the right word, but he went to act like he was blocking someone to the left, and it turned out to be a little bit of a perimeter screen. Yeah. And he just ran wide open down the sideline. I imagine I, I'm trying to figure out the best way to ask this. Obviously, I don't think they could put Jakur Pearson in the H back position and have him be so you know remotely effective because I don't think he's going to block anyone very well does Drummond having kind of that strong lower body does that help him playing that H back position that they've utilized in some pretty creative ways so far what makes him a good fit there 
Well, I think, I mean, what you're saying is correct. You're not going to put someone who you can't at least have a threat as a blocker. Right. But Drummond, he's fully capable of taking on an SEC safety at least. So you know if you need to have him as an extra blocker on max protection or you really are pulling him to take out a linebacker, at least, you know, give him a little nudge or something like that. You know, that happens all the time that he's got that ability. And moving him around, especially with kind of some of the questions around the tight end position, it's nice to have a guy who can do a whole lot of catching the ball as well as at least being a threat to block. What's his NFL future? Like, could he be a good NFL receiver? Yeah, I think he could. Um, It's so tough. The most important thing in the NFL, and so many scouts have told me this, and there are many important things, but the ability to, in one-on-one situations, get open is of paramount importance. You know, whether that's outrunning the guy deep, whether that's having the ability to make a safety miss, you know, being able to be multiple, it's so important. Drummond does not exactly have breakaway speed. Right. He's really not going to be able to take on a guy like Jalen Ramsey and beat him deep or Marshawn Lattimore, all these elite corners. But he's got great hands. He's incredibly physical. He's not going to be scared to go over the middle. Um, He's smooth. I think he'll have a chance to have a, a real NFL future. Do I see him as a guy coming out in the top three rounds? think that would be a little much I think he can build his way to get to a third round maybe late second round pick but you got to be pretty damn dynamic and there's a lot of really good receivers in the NFL it's not even taken away from him it's just it's a tough position to be in and it's not something you talk about getting open and like you know run yourself open in one-on-one coverages that's not something he's even really had to do through two games so far because the scheme has been so good and of course one of it's the opponent it being Austin P as we preface everything with that but to, I guess kind of to add some color to your point, the Bray, Braylon Sanders, I remember Lane Kiffin said later in camp or midway through camp, like he could play his way into, like he is a first-round talent. And Kiffin doesn't really just, maybe he was trying to hype up his guy a little bit, but he doesn't really offer stuff like that all the time. He's not like kind of the corny, I'm going to say whatever, you know, my player's the greatest player of no. all time. Like he doesn't say stuff like that. That's what you're talking about to where Sanders does have that speed to make himself get open. And he's a good route runner as well in one-on-one and not that Drummond's completely incapable with that, but like, that's the part you're talking about that Drummond just doesn't have. Right. I mean, Braylon can really break open a defense at pretty much any moment. And uh, Drummond, a lot of his stuff has been scheme oriented, you know, and that's not like, I'm not knocking this kid. I think he's a hell of a player and probably will play in the NFL. But, you know, you just kind of watch some guys. You just see, like, man, like, look at that speed, in-cut, out-cut, hands, all the above. I mean, Drummond has better hands than Braylon, I would say. But Braylon's got the other attributes that maybe Drummond doesn't have, which is probably why Kiffin – I mean, he doesn't give that away. He doesn't say this guy's a first-round guy, you know, for shits and giggles. He means it. And Braylon has a chance to do that. It won't be stats-related. These guys are pros. They know what they're looking for. If Braylon doesn't have the stats Drummond has this year, that doesn't mean Drummond's going to go ahead of Braylon in the draft. But, um, I mean, Ole Miss fans have been pretty spoiled with the receiver yeah, no the past few years, and I think we'll get to how spoiled they've been on quarterback here in a minute. But um, they'll both be fine. I wouldn't be worried about either one of them. And going elsewhere toward Mingo, pretty good game from him. He made a really nice catch early in the game. It was, I think it may have been the first throw Corral had. It was, I couldn't tell if the ball was misplaced or not, but he kind of had to contort his body back inward while running an outward route and made a really nice snag. 
he had a nice game, right? Seven catches for 99 yards. Um, he did have a drop early on in the game with the screen. What's I know I've probably asked you this before, but he's a big physical kid. Maybe so it's funny. Kiffin said, I know you watched that press conference where it was like he said Knox said he reminded him of DK Metcalf's brother, where I've always thought, and I haven't seen a ton of like him in person because I had that 19 season. Obviously, I wasn't around on the field in 20 or anything like that. I, maybe it's just I'm being guilty of him wearing the same number, but yeah. I always looked at him as having a similar to an AJ Brown build. Just kind of give me the the thing you do with Mingo and what's kind of his ceiling and kind of what he's needed to develop on and what you saw from him last night. Yeah, uh, he definitely more of an AJ Brown build. Um, I think which is so, I mean, AJ is so freaky that AJ is still bigger than Mingo. Like just right. he's longer and bigger and plays in the slot, whereas Mingo won't be a slot guy in the NFL or really in this offense very often, I would say. Um, he's super physical, tough as hell to bring down, and he runs like a running back with the ball, very similar to what A.J. used to do. But uh, I wouldn't say he's not as fluid as A.J. with the ball in his hands yet. I think he's getting more comfortable the more targets he's gotten so far this season. Um, he's got a pretty high ceiling. I think he really uh, has to work on kind of tracking the ball in the air. He struggles here and there with the deep ball, like catching it on the run, scoring. Um, he fights the ball with his hands a little bit, but he's really, really, really matured. I think he's had a great start to the year. Um, he's, a, he's a big confidence kid, needs to have some confidence. I think he lost a little bit last fall. Uh, just not getting the playing time he probably thought he was going to get and had some struggles in camp. But this camp was great from all accords, and um, I think he started off well. He's going to be a good player for this team. Maybe I'm making too much out of nothing here, but, man, if that guy turns into – you talk about being able to get yourself open in one-on-one -on -one situations and as big and as physical he is as a build, if he turns into – Again, it's so hard as Ole Miss has been spoiled at the receiver position. I know he wears number one, and, like, it's it's hard not to compare him to the A.J. Brown, Laquan Treadwell type of thing. Right. But if he becomes some semblance of that on the outside, right, where he's a reliable threat to where when he's in one-on-one, -on -one, you feel like he can win his matchup more often than not, is that a little bit of a game-changer for this offense? Because all of a sudden you have that on one side, Sanders on the other, and Drummond, who's clearly kind of – played himself open because of what Sanders and I guess to a degree Mingo have done on the outside. Like all of a sudden I would be an opposing defensive coordinator to being like, well, shit. Like if, if that guy becomes a reliable, like you can't just throw one dude on him and expect him to kind of have a pedestrian night. That seems like it would be a bit of a game changer for this offense. Yeah, it would be. And I mean, they've got a really good three right there with Mingo Drummond and Braylon and the way they've played so far. Um, I don't think you're going to get, uh, Mingo turning into AJ Brown. I think I just, you got to understand how amazing AJ Brown is. Yeah, for I, sure. He just is an absolute, you know, difference maker at every single level uh, as a receiver. And Mingo is maturing. He's getting much better, getting much more comfortable in the offense. Um, I don't think you'll see that kind of meteoric rise, but if you can get as much out of him as you can, continue to improve, continue to work on some of the things he needs to then you're really, really cooking with fire, and they've, they'll get there. The offense wasn't really the sharpest for the first couple possessions of the game. They had some penalties. I want to say, so they went touchdown. 
whole they had a penalty ridden drive something else happened point being they didn't really hit their stride till about fifth or sixth series in the game that being said as you were kind of alluding to earlier Matt Corral is awesome what he finishes I don't know 21 to 33 for 281 five touchdowns he they use I don't I'm trying I don't have it in front of me I'm about to look it up real quick so just make sure I have this right he ran the ball eight times for 35 yards did take another hit Again, eight is not 12 like it was last week, but I just remember you saying after we talked about it was like, they can't have that happen. Like he doesn't need to be taking hits like that, but he was kind of, I guess, even a little bit slightly more than what you would call a willing runner. And that again, Austin P I'm not asking you to make any sweeping declarations, but do you make anything of that at all through two games that he does have 20 carries? I guess a couple of them are count as like sacks or whatever, but he was definitely involved in the running game and picked up some important first downs with his feet. Uh, still not the greatest slider. He had kind of the awkward, like, oh, did my cleat get stuck in the ground type of baseball-ish slide <laughs> and then took a hit later in the game. Do you make anything of his increased kind of running more than we thought so far through two games? Uh, not too much. Uh, I think he's just reading what he needs to read. And uh, when they call those plays, they know there's a chance that Corral can keep it and make it happen. Uh, it still eight more carries against Austin P that I would like to see <laughs> make it happen through the air, give it to the running backs who are really, really good. Don't need to see you running the ball against this team. Um, but no, I mean, I think it's just, this, this is the offense he's got, they want a mobile guy. They like what corral has with his legs, but you know, this team goes by corral. So they really have to or corral really it's him. He's got to figure out when to run and when not to. How much of that, if anything, went into the evaluation of Corral coming out of high school? Because when we had the the whole Plumlee Corral thing in 2019 with Rich Rod, like Corral almost got, and maybe this was just a classic like lazy radio narrative, but we almost talked about him like he was a statue or something because you know, Plumlee, you know, it was like, oh, Plumlee's a better runner. He fits this a little bit better. Whereas, like, Corral's not a bad runner by any stretch. Like, what how, what, what, part of that was in the evaluation as far as his ability to extend plays with his feet? Yeah, I mean, it's always part of it. You have to be able to see a guy on film and, like, all right, this guy is not a dual-threat quarterback, but is he a capable runner? Like, can he physically run the ball and scare you to at least an extent? Um, and it was tough, you know, comparing him to Plumlee with their very different kinds of runners. Plumlee doesn't really make anybody miss, but if he has one crease, he's gone. Whereas Corral kind of has some wiggle to him. He's very capable as a runner. Honestly, sometimes you'd almost rather a guy like him than Plumlee where it's straight or, you know, it's over. Um, but like I said, and I'll keep saying, like, he's got to figure out when to slide, protect himself, you know, that this team goes as he goes. Well, that was another part of it, and I guess we can just go ahead and get to it now. We talked about it a couple of times through camp, where it's like it's hope, it's a question you don't have to answer. But late in the game was actually probably in some ways in terms of trying to figure out anything about this team from this game. Some of the most telling parts of it were they played both Altmeyer and Kid K. Dent, and neither one of them looked great. And again, I'm, I'm being that guy that's just trying to grasp from a very small sample size in front of me. But I will say they didn't really let Dent throw it a lot. They're, the two deep balls that Altmeyer threw down the right side, neither one of them were hauled in. I can't remember who was playing receiver when that happened. But I will say 
he flicks it quite nicely. Like the, both of those balls, like he had nice footwork, nice delivery. They were both on target ish. One of them probably should have been hauled in, but wasn't. So you can kind of see what you were talking about with Altmaier being one of your favorite kids, you know, tough as hell, but really throws a beautiful football by a lot of measures, but neither one of them really played well. And then all of a sudden you saw Plumlee take some snaps at quarterback at the end. And I just found it funny because in the press conference, Kiffin, he's big on the crowd being there one and two staying a long time, like very Saban-esque in that sense to where, you know, he made a comment at the beginning of it that didn't really have anything to do with the question. And then he got asked about Plumley at the end with the backup quarterbacks. And he was like, yeah, like we wanted the crowd to stay for four quarters. And we knew if we gave Plumley the football, the crowd would probably stick around longer. And he was like, <laughs> Levy said to me in the headset, you know, he hasn't practiced his plays, these plays. And you know, I was like, oh, he'll be fine. Like, again, like, I guess I know that was some of that was tongue in cheek, but man, from what you saw yesterday, does it not probably feel like not. if Corral has to miss any sort of extended action that it's probably plumbly playing quarterback? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll start off with the, the comment first. I mean, it probably <laughs> it was, was funny as shit. It probably wasn't tongue in cheek. Levy probably was like, why are we putting him in? Like he hasn't played quarterback. And Kiffin was like, he'll figure it out. <laughs> Cause it's probably exactly what happened. Um, when it comes to the other guys, um, we've mentioned on this podcast, but I think they're going to the portal. Who that guy is going to be, I don't know. I've got some ideas. But, I was say, I'll throw one. Go ahead, finish your thought. I got an idea to throw at you in a second. But uh, I think Kincaid's, Kincaid, his time as like a real factor is being the starter is probably over. You know, he's a junior now or a redshirt sophomore. Um, I'm not giving up on Luke by any means. He's a true freshman. This is his second game ever. He was dealing with a nagging injury. Um, he's he's got a beautiful release. You know, it's tight, it's short, it's exactly what you want. Uh, just doesn't have a cannon, and like he doesn't really even have like an overly strong arm. He's very accurate, and he can do a lot of things within the 20, 25, 30 yards. But you know, Kiffin and Lebby are going to want to see a guy like really expand the field and. He'll get stronger and bigger, and I think he'll develop to a guy who can run this offense at a high level. But you, you got to strike while the fire's hot, and there's a lot of talent on this team. And if you want to keep it going, you got to go and find a guy who can get you where you need to go. There's some names out there that I think everyone kind of thinks about. Jack Miller, I don't see it happening personally. Uh, I don't know if you watch Ohio State with C.J. Stroud, but – he exact not exactly lighting the world on fire at all, and Jack couldn't beat him out. I don't think it's going to be one of those Joe Burrow situations because, you know, Haskins has not played well in the NFL, but he was a damn good college football quarterback. So Burrow losing the job to him was not that big of a deal. There's always the Miles Brennan coming back to Mississippi. That's where I was going to go. Um, there you kind of – Kids don't really bullshit you. And every interview you hear from Miles is always talking about how he wants to be the LSU quarterback and how he wants to end his career as a starting quarterback at LSU. And I really believe him. I don't think he's full of it at all. I think there was a moment there um, where Miles was considering leaving, not this year, but in the past. Um I don't see it happening now. He's got a, a massive injury question mark history. I mean, you can't put your eggs in that basket right now as a coaching staff and be confident. Um, and then there's the one that makes a lot of sense 
from pretty much every angle, and that's Gabriel at UCF. I don't know what his eligibility status is off the top of my head, but what I do know is that Levy's coached him, Kiffin's played against him, and he's a very good quarterback and knows this system. And if he wants a shot shot at the big time, I think it would be pretty easy for that transition. Gabriel was a true freshman in 2019, so I imagine he's a junior this year with a COVID year because he was listed as a sophomore in 2020. So definitely something there. Yeah, I think it may. I think it would make a lot of sense. Um, I I don't know. There's no insider information. I haven't talked to Levy. Oh yeah, no. This is There's this no, is a year this off. Is We're but I think the overall comments about the portal and quarterback is I think Ole Miss is in a wildly advantageous scenario with guys who want to go that route because of what they've been doing on offense, what Corral will be drafted at this year. I mean, people are going to see that and be like, all right, well, I'm not going to Bama because they have Bryce Young. You know, the Georgia kid looked pretty good, probably not going to be starting automatically there. And they've got another kid behind him. All of a sudden you look around and be like, well, Ole Miss is in the SEC and they need a quarterback and they're putting up 50, 60 points a game. Like, why not? It could be anybody, but I think they're going to have a shot at getting the best one. And they brought another aspect to this is they brought in that kid from Maryland, Tyrell Pigrome, Pigromi. I, I literally know nothing about the kid, don't know how to say his name, but do you make, I know there's a lot of reasons guys transfer. Maybe this kid was trying to get on the fast track to being a coach. I'm not, I'm not asking you to know anything about this kid. I don't know how familiar you were with I, him. But did, do you make – like, there was that move on the surface. Do you think that was indicative of anything, or is that just some random roster attrition that just happens? Like, do you think that was indicative of anything they felt about the two quarterbacks they have? John Rice, the pianist, not included in this conversation for the time being. Understood. Um, I mean, there's clearly a relationship with Durkin because he went to Maryland to begin his career, uh, beating the crap out of Texas, which seems to be a trend. Um I don't know. It, it's hard to tell. I think they're probably like, you know, if you want to come and we can have an extra arm and an extra dynamic and maybe someone that's with real experience, we can trust to play quarterback. Like, yeah, you're not going to say no to that. Is this kid actually the backup quarterback? I don't know that either. I would say maybe I'm not, I, I'm not going to hot take it and give you one or the other. Cause I just, I don't know, but I would be a little bit shocked if, you know, Corral gets a bumper, bruise against Tulane, and, you know, this kid's going in there. I mean, he's only been on campus for like a month. Right, now. like a week. Yeah, so I, it's it's tough to say. I think it's a, a situation where it's like, you know, we get valuable experience in a quarterback room where we don't have a lot except for our starter. Like, this kid has no eligibility left. Why not? Like, who cares? Yeah. Take him, figure it out later. You got room, no issues. So the Brennan thing, last thing before we kind of move on from it was – the Brennan thing was what I was going to throw at you, but you beat me to the punch there. I, I agree with you where, like, I don't – and I don't pretend to know Miles Brennan. I don't pretend to watch a, a ton of LSU press conferences, but he has clearly made it very plain that he would like to be the starting quarterback at LSU and finish his career that way. Whereas, as much as he wants that, had Max Johnson lit the world on fire and LSU looked like they were pretty good, that, to me, would probably be more indicative of his him – whether he wants to or not, it being in his best interest to transfer, where if this shit continues to go south for them, 
and you have a coaching change, that would be all the more reason on the surface for Brennan to actually return, right? Like he's not behind the eight ball or anything to whereas Max Johnson was actually good. Brennan might see the writing on the wall and be like, okay, we'll just start over somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of angles to the LSU and Brennan thing. I mean, one is they really like baby Nussmeyer, Doug Nussmeyer's kid. I didn't get to see him play. I know he had a few snaps against McNeese. Um, and then they've got Walker Howard from Lafayette, who's a top three quarterback in the country coming in. So Brennan, even if he's fully healthy, there's still no guarantee he gets to play there next year. So right. And he's and that's not because he's not good, because the, he was the least of their issues last year and this year. He was he good. good. He is a good quarterback. But if you're going to go transfer portal, got a guy you can count on with his injury history, even as unlucky as this last one was where he just literally his flip-flop got stuck in a, uh, a pier and he fell on his wrist and broke it. You just can't count on him. And I mean, unless you bring in two and just be like, Hey, you know, bring them both and see what happens, whether whoever the other one may be like, I would not take the miles Brennan train or get on that train. If he's the savior of what you think your offense is going to look like next year with his injuries. That makes sense. And if you want to go like the – it's not even a hot take, but if you want to go the dramatic declaration route about what you saw from last night was – and you prob- we probably knew this anyway. Like, again, I, I, I keep, it's weird talking about it because it's almost like you're – like I don't believe in jinxes, but like if Corral were to go down this ship on the season in terms of what the team's actual ceiling could be, it's probably sailed. Like they need two to play 12 games or 13 games. That's just kind of way, the way this team is built, the way the offense is built. Like they're just – you're just not going to be, you know, anywhere close to as good as you were with him not on the field. I mean, I know I'm stating the obvious. The kid's – potentially a Heisman contender. Like, but if there was anything answered, like there is no, he has no Zach Calzada to where Haynes King to where it's not the ton of drop off. That's just not a thing. Right. Not with this team. And that's not with most teams. So it's right. not an Ole Miss issue. Like, Oh my God, our quarterback depth. Like, no, they've recruited guys, you know, just the one that's actually starting and playing just happens to be maybe the best quarterback in the country. So it's really just, yeah, he's got to play 12 games, but that's most teams as well. I didn't see Corral's – they didn't post the video, or at least I couldn't find it of his post-game presser had he had one. I'm sure I'll go back and try to find audio of it at some point. But he seemed visibly frustrated at times with the way the offense was functioning. Uh, kind of you know, showed some emotion towards the sideline. It wasn't anything over the top. It's just your classic quarterback kind of looking demonstrative over the field. But I think that was probably a decent indicator of, you know, I know they scored 54 points, put up 600 yards of offense against a shit opponent, but like they didn't function at full capacity, which is probably mostly natural through two games. But to transition that elsewhere, we talked a decent bit about the offensive line and the running game struggling a bit last week, particularly in kind of some of their, uh, I would say, I don't know if this is the right term, but like edge concepts, some of the stuff they try to do to get outside, they seem to struggle with. And I think Ely's statistics last week were a little bit of a result of that. I don't know where to start with the run game, but I'll start here. Have you ever seen a team run for 330-something yards in the ground and no one go over 100? <laughs> Not often. They went 43 carries, 336 yards, a touchdown, and no one had more than 72 yards. Yeah, I mean, I think it was one of the biggest known commodities of this team was they're good at running back and they're deep at running back. And, you know, I think I made my prediction that Parrish would end up with the most rushing yards on the season. and. On track so far. Yep, uh, I stand by it, and that's not a knock on any of the other guys. But, 
you know, the offensive line I mentioned earlier is, you know, the depth is probably the biggest question mark on that whole offense. And I think it's kind of rearing its head a little bit when you got a guy like Umana not playing. But this running the ball is a huge focus of this offense. And they're going to get to a point where they need to effectively and efficiently run it. They did fine on Saturday. And Tulane will be a bigger challenge, and we'll see where they go from there. But I'm not worried about running back. But some of the blocking schemes they've got to get you know, shaped up. And Corral knows that. Absolutely. Snoop, uncharacteristic fumble. Just not overly sharp, but I thought they looked better in some of the concepts. Like, it seemed like Ely had a little bit more space to run um, than in weeks past. (laughs) So, in terms of pure running, from your vantage point, as best you can tell, what are the different ways in terms of whether it's what they call or just generally how they utilize him? When it's Parrish versus Ely in there, are they trying to do something different with whatever the run concept is? Because I just say that to the untrained eye where I'm sitting there watching it, it seems a lot more to try to get Ely kind of on the edge and into space to whereas it seems to me like Paris has such a quick burst. They don't really mind him running on the interior a lot because if there is a hole, that kid's going to get through it quickly. That could be totally inaccurate, but just is there any merit to that? And how do they use them differently in some of the run concepts? Um, there's merit to that. I, I would say that they all have different skill sets, including Bullock. Um, I don't think they're going to be like, okay, Ely's in the game. These are our run plays. Snoop's in the game. These are our run plays. Right. And yeah, and so on and so forth. But uh, they all have different skill sets, but are capable of running the offense as a base in any form or fashion. You know, they can all do the same things and they all can do different things. I think Ely's speed makes them want to get him out on the edge a little bit more. Parrish is not the biggest running back, but he's so quick, you know, inside the tackles that they're willing to give him those short yards plays, kind of like they would Snoop. Bullock, very similar, but Bullock is a little bit more, Ely-esque, where he's not a lot of make you miss, but has real burst and speed. So they don't change up the offense for all four guys, but they definitely will maybe see who's in, maybe make a small adjustment, but not changing the whole offense. That makes sense. So there's not a whole lot else to hit, I don't think, Um Offensively, I was just kind of going through my notes. It just was, I mean, they did exactly what they were supposed to do, right? They beat a crap opponent. They looked okay doing it for the most part. Um, Not a whole lot there. Played some different O-line guys at the end. Not really a shocker. Exactly who you thought the second team guards and tackles would be. Was nothing uh, really shocking. Drummond having seven straight games with a touchdown was actually a little bit shocking to me. I know he was a factor last year, but when they, I, my man Dick Cross blurted that out on the broadcast, and I was like, wow, that I don't know why I found that a little bit surprising. That was really all the notes I had. You had, you did see a little bit of Ely in the slot early. He had a drop. Um, they had Parrish in the slot a couple of times. I think there was one time where they actually, there was one instance where they had Ely in the backfield and Parrish in the slot, and then they had once where I think they ran a screen to Ely on the outside, but Parrish was the other slot guy. I don't – don't quote me or hold me to that, but with Parrish in the slot, I'm just curious – this is just something I wrote down my own curiosity. What do you think they're trying to do there? I know he's not completely incompetent catching the ball, but that's not something he's known for. 
Yeah, I mean, not not really. I actually on the last podcast said, said I don't expect to see many of the, either of them in the slot too much. Right. I was wrong. So it wasn't a ton. I just noticed it. They both happened four or five snaps at least. Yeah, I would say it's probably giving teams a look, put something on film, change it up a little bit. Maybe you see what you like out of both of them doing what they need to do. Just expanding the offense off of what they already know. So I wouldn't put a whole lot of stock into it. Both can catch the ball and can make some things happen. But I was actually a little shocked they played as much as they did. One of the things – with Ely, not what, not Ely, excuse me. One of the things Kiffin and Levy love to do, where you see a lot of schools go vanilla a lot of times in these games. Uh, I would say Iowa State's a good example of that. In week one, they won 16 to 10 against Northern Iowa. And I think yeah. ran, I mean, if you watch any part of that game, they ran like the same nine plays. A lot of times Kiffin will try to get something on film just to have something for the other team to prepare for whatever the opponent may be, right? No, a lot of times he just kind of in, I want to say it's like the offensive coordinator version of just like bullshitting, but sometimes he's just putting something out there to get it on tape to plant the seed, right? No, I mean, I think the Plumlee thing is almost exactly that, where Levy's like, what the hell are we doing? Like, (laughs) play quarterback, like, but we're going to put it on there. It's what good coaches do. Right. Whether it's even a special team wrinkle or it really anything, you're playing Austin P. Get some crap on film for people to have to deal with. I mean, I know we did it a few times last year where we literally put shit out there. Or not <laughs> last year, two years ago. We're just like, yeah, like, just throw it out there. Like, let's see what they have to do with it. You know, they're going to have to watch it. They have to figure it out. You know, it's like putting a swinging gate on freaking extra point. You're not doing it because you're trying to get two. You're trying to do it so they just have to waste time, 20 minutes of practice, figuring it out. Right. You know? Stuff like that. that. That is real. Like, that stuff happens. Defensively, uh, we'll cover some defensive stuff, then really get some more around the SEC stuff. Because, again, theme of the podcast, I might title the podcast, it was Austin P. But Correct. they played a lot of guys, particularly on the defensive line. Uh, I'm just going through my notepad here. Lakia Henry did get the start over Mark Robinson. Mark Robinson played a ton. Again, probably not a ton to be made there. They're just both two pretty good linebackers. Yep. Sam Williams had two sacks, two forced fumbles. He had the play where he forced the fumble, picked the football up, and then ran it in the end zone. Kiffin had a nice quote about Sam Williams after the game where it's like he showed up a different player to camp. Like we challenged him to be you know, more consistent, as we've talked about a lot. And to, to what Kiffin said so far, they've seen a lot of that from him. Um, to me, this was the quintessential classic Sam Williams game. I think he realized pretty quickly that neither one of those tackles was going to do shit to him and he was going to feast upon it. But that's got to be a good sign. I mean, he was in on every play. He was a monster. But beyond just the game, that's got to be a good sign hearing Kiffin be like, yes, he has been a different guy. Like, that's what you're going to need when they hit the thick of this SEC schedule. What do you think with the way he played? Played great. I mean, really, I mean, I cannot stress how amazing of an athlete, uh, just a physical specimen, specimen, sorry, that Sam Williams is. I think that strip sack kept, grabbed the fumble, run to the end zone, even though it looks easy for a guy that's 6'5", 245, 250 to just do it and make it look as easy as he did is a really underrated. Um, it's great to see him playing well because they need him in the future to play up to this level. Like you said, we should title this podcast, it was Austin P. He is so much better than anyone they're going to put out there. So take it with a grain of salt, but it was good, good confidence booster. 
maybe remind him how good he is here and there. Be like, okay, I can't just manhandle a few guys. But uh, it was great to see. Another line that Kiffin had, I think it may have been the same answer. And, again, he's not a guy, you know, I mean, not just – if you want to go to the extreme example of it, we asked Matt Luke – I like Matt Luke. I'm not trying to shit on the guy. But we asked Matt Luke about Luke Logan and the kicking struggles after the Egg Bowl, and he gave the cliched answer of, he can do it. We just need to get him confident again. It's like, actually, no, he can't. Like, we've seen a lot. He cannot do it. Yep. Kiffin doesn't do a lot of that. And one of the things I found interesting in his answers – was he was talking about Williams and the defensive ends as a whole. And he was like, look, the way we play, we only have three down linemen. And if there's two guys on the edge aren't very good and aren't causing problems, it's not a very good system. And then he went on to say something to the effect of, we are fortunate to have guys like Sam and guys like Cedric that can cause problems there. He seems to be high on both of them. And I know it's two games and one of the opponent you can't take a lot from. But in terms of, again, the interior is a different story. We'll get to in a second. The edge seems to be maybe even a little bit better than they thought so far through two games. What have you thought about the two outside guys in this 3-2-6 thing? Yeah, I mean, going back to what we said, like kind of the beginning of the pod during fall camp, that buck outside linebacker edge player was probably one of the deepest positions on the team. You know, and this is with Tavius Robinson having not played a snap yet. Um, Good point. They, they, I've actually forgotten about him. I know. Well, so did I. Didn't even realize <laughs> So that's, I guess, on us, whatever. Who cares? It's awesome, P. Um, but, I mean, Cedric Johnson, I knew this was coming from him. I mean, you know that how good and how talented he could be. And with him and Sam and Tisdale, like, really playing with some effort for maybe the first time in his career, they, they really do have a good crew there. I think interior-wise is where they got to find a few guys. But, you know, you don't run a system that you don't have the players to run it with. You know, Ed Ogeron decided to switch from 3-4 to 4-3 whenever Randa left, and, you know, that was a stupid decision because he didn't have the team for it. Kiffin and Durkin aren't going to do that. They're not going to just, you know, pinpoint a system and run it just because they want it to be that way. They're going to figure out what guys do we have and how can we best get it out of them, and this has clearly been that for them, and it's proven to be correct so far. You saw a lot of different guys on the defensive line. You saw Taiwan, Taiwan Malone for the first time. He, uh, poor kid, that whatever P did on that play that he got the sack, the poor kid was supposed to block him and then just decided not to. I don't even know if it was a missed block. The kid just literally sidestepped by the way. And Malone was seven yards in the backfield before he'd been touched. But one right. of the things I did notice was you saw extended action from Jamon Gordon for the first time in this game. And I know – like, I, I don't want to, like, corner you into, like, being a scheme savant because I know you've said you're, like, not, but you do know a hell of a lot more about this than I do. I'm just curious, when they went – so there were a couple of times where they went, like – I have one of these written down. Tisdale in the middle, Iton Williams. There were a couple of times where it was Gordon and either Hill, Bivens, and then Williams. And then one time, I believe it was Iton on one side – Gordon on the other, and then your typical, whether it was KD Hill or Quentin Bivens or whatever. Are you surprised that Jamon Gordon's playing outside at all, just given his body type? And two, when they do this 3-2-6 thing, with the running part of it, are is there times when it's an obvious rundown situation where they're trying to put bigger guys there versus like the Cedric Johnson, Sam Williams pass rushing special? What goes into that rotation, I guess, is the best way to start off asking that. 
Yeah, I think this game, it was just seeing what you got and what they can do, you know, against different different guys. You know, you see it in practice. You know, you know what they are against our team. But, you know, sometimes you just got to see what they look like against another team. Uh, Gordon has – he's got the length and the ability to play in, in this in this game for sure. Aiton's the same kind of way. You know, they're both not overly tall, but they've got pretty long arms, which is important. Um, it's really just mixing and matching. You know, you got to build some depth at all these positions. Seeing who's comfortable where is probably their biggest goal out of getting everybody on different uh, different links. So I know you weren't. It was interesting hearing you talk last week. You were not a big Jamon Gordon guy in terms of, uh, and just in terms of like in terms of being a prospect. And that's just natural part of the business that you have guys that you're not as high on and guys that you're high on, and some hit, some miss. Like it's just part of it. But if that kid can be a contributor at whatever it is, like where could he, where all can he play? That's probably the best way to ask you this. Where do you think he can play? I know he's probably not a nose, but can he go inside and out kind of like Tisdale does? I think he can. Yeah, I do think he can. Um, and yeah, me not liking the kid doesn't mean he's going to suck by any means. Yeah, absolutely. Me. Um, I think he's got the ability to play in. I don't think you necessarily want him at end. At least I wouldn't. But I don't really know a whole lot about the three-two-six scheme, so I don't really know exactly what his uh, his role and what he's supposed to do every single down. But he's got a, the ability to play both. Uh, I think you'll see him more inside. But if they like him outside, believe me, they know more than I do when it comes to that. So they'll figure it out. What was recruiting Malone like? And I know there was kind of the baseball aspect of it, and that's probably a whole nother conversation for another day in terms of what goes in that part of recruitment. But when you guys were recruiting him and trying to land him, because I know it was a huge deal. You talked to anyone inside that building from the time that he was in undecided. Did you think he could contribute immediately? Because he is on the field in the second game, and they at least talk about him like a guy they hope can contribute. But he's also a true freshman. And then the injury aspect, I guess, set him back a little. What was it like recruiting him, and did you guys think he could contribute as a true freshman? Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of interesting because he came to visit on like a baseball deal kind of way back when. So we never got to see him. So okay. he all the pictures and he did the baseball and football pictures. And then um, I think he may have come back for an official visit. I was gone by then. Um, maybe after the season last year, he might have come back for an official. I do not remember. But it's it, you know, it was a COVID recruitment. You know, you didn't see the kid a whole lot. He wasn't traveling around and whatnot. Um, from all accounts, was a great kid. Not a lot of issues. You know, I think recruiting the Northeast with Partridge, you know, he's got some great relationships up there. All states and areas are different. But, uh, you know, he, he was very serious about baseball being a huge part of his recruitment, which is why, you know, A&M was such a, like, a man, like, you got to figure this out. You know, I know AM wasn't good at baseball this year, but they are good at baseball usually. Um, it wasn't difficult. To, and when it came to that, you know, Lafferty with baseball does such a great job helping us, you know, really does. I mean, he's great with football kids. And, I mean, ended up winning out in the end, as simple as that. And I think we really led for the majority of the time. To hell with it. That's where I was going to maybe, like, partially touch like touch on that subject next what is that dynamic like recruiting a dual sport kid because I wrote a story on it when Plumlee and Ely got here I talked to Anthony Alford and then Sinquez Golson who offered one of the better quotes I've had in a long time and when you talk about the two sport thing where he's like man it suck he was like life's a struggle just find you someone to struggle with 
Like that was just his entire answer on the whole two score yeah. thing. I was like, that's, that's pretty, pretty good shit there, Sinquez. What is that dynamic like when you're recruiting a kid that can also play baseball? Because you just mentioned Lafferty's been great with it. Obviously, with the 85 scholarships, football is technically footing the bill. And, you know, I, you don't even have to read between the lines on this. Past coaches, I'll let you guess who, um, often weaponized that to some degree when it came down to it. Others, Matt Luke, did not like we're pretty open to it. what's that dynamic like what's the relationship between the two sports i think it's gotten a lot better you know I, I at least while i was there we had no issues at any moment asking the baseball guys for help you know like you said we're footing the bill they're getting them for free right pretty much. i mean I'm, I, there might be some other stuff that goes into it i don't know numbers wise but they're getting the kid for free and you know as they don't even really put that much of their evaluation stock into it you know, it's not like, oh, you know, Malone, yeah, he might be able to play first base with some, you know, plus power, but we don't really give a shit about him. We're not going to help you. Like, no. It's not costing them anything is why. It's not costing you anything, you know, and maybe, you know, shit, maybe he's better than you thought he was. Happens all the time in every single sport. Happened with Plumley, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I agree, too. I think Plumley's been a much better baseball player and contributor to that team than I think some people give him credit for. Uh, it's hard as hell to do both, and both of those guys. I know Ely got hurt, probably not seeing him ever play for Ole Miss baseball again. Um, but you know, it, it's a really easy, and especially when you got guys. You know, when I was doing it with Luke, and even with Kiffin, with Malone, they're just the baseball guys are so helpful, and it doesn't take a lot of time out of their day just to be a little bit helpful here and there. Um, and it's it's a really smooth. And that is not the case with all schools. You know, I bring up LSU a lot because I know a lot about them. I know that there were some Hampton, you know, issues on what was this, what's this kid going to do with baseball? What's he going to do with football? Like, what's more important? Um, that's never really ever been an issue with Ole Miss, at least with the three or four guys we've recruited um, that have done both. Just ripping through a couple more notes before we get around the SEC stuff. With this 3-2-6 thing, as prevalent as the perimeter screen game has become in college football, where you're just getting an athlete in space, it's kind of like what Ole Miss does with Ely sometimes where they did it a couple of times in their night. It's like throw him the ball, let him try to work his way back towards the middle of the field or whether it's the outside, basically just get him the ball in space with, you made a good point last week. It's like the reason they're doing this is because of the strength of their defense is the secondary. They have a lot of guys who can run around pretty athletic and fly to the ball in terms of just I, this is not a stat, but I might make it one. In terms of just blown up screens through two games, the whole quarterback turns left or right or whatever. Ole Miss has gotten burned on a couple of like the middle screens where they dump it to the back, like just to the left or right of where the line set. But the whole like tunnel screen or bubble or whatever you whatever type of screen you want to the receiver on the edge, Ole Miss has done a really good job of hitting that in the backfield. And I imagine that has to underscore your point of that being their strength, but this three, two, six really plays. What of that? Is that something you've noticed? Cause I just thought they did a nice job of that through two games. I think a lot of that's been coaching. I mean, their, their ability to see attack the outside of the screener funnel, all those back inside has been as good as I've ever seen it at Ole Miss. I mean, truly Louisville, especially, I mean, they did such a great job with that. And I think, you know, a lot of these coaches have seen this defense. I think it was really popular. I think three years ago, the Lamar Jackson's rookie year, they played the Chargers, and the Chargers played seven DBs the entire game. 
And the, I get the concept behind that is who do you want to try to tackle Lamar Jackson? Do you want your safeties and corners who are fast, quick, or do you want your slow, you know, humbling middle linebacker? You know, you want all your DBs to be chasing around these guys, um, especially if you're comfortable with them as a tackler. So it's worked really well so far. They've been incredibly fundamentally sound on a lot of these screen plays and these, you know, spread you out plays. And, you know, hopefully they get better at it and keep improving with these younger guys who are going to get real playing time. But it's been a success so far, and it's a tribute to Durkin and Partridge and Buckley and these guys who have coached them up, like, just perfectly on how to handle it. Absolutely. And, I, yeah, it's going to be interesting because we've talked about it a couple of times. There is going to come a time where they're probably going to have to be played out of that just given the opponent. But it's, it's worked quite well for them. And in some ways, I think it's probably helped them mask some of the depth issues they've had elsewhere because they do have a little bit of newfound depth at the court, like that the at this position, the secondary versus where if you're trying to get four linebackers or something on the field every time or three plus like a Sam Williams type guy and you either get an injury, right? Because think about it this way. If you have just say three linebackers on the field, you have an injury, all of a sudden that's kind of the Momo Sonogo show. And like, as you've mentioned a couple of times throughout camp, that's not what Ole Miss would prefer to have is like their starting linebacker guy in the mix that much. I think Sonogo didn't play till late in the second quarter. This game was in the third quarter for last game. So I think it's also helped them mask some depth issues as well. Um, just one of the last things I've had, just like cleaning up some notes stuff here. Um, Casey Kelly dressed. I don't know what to make of that, but I did see him on the sideline in uniform. So he's had some injuries. Can't get hurt. I'm literally just regurgitating this, making sure my notepad gets on paper. I think that was about it. They played a bunch of dudes, saw some Taiwan Lund, saw some Jamon Gordon, much tougher challenges ahead. I don't know how much you can tell. Um, Chance Campbell, really good. Him and Mark Robinson, in terms of, again, you're the evaluator here, but they seem to have a level of downhill speed and to close the gap from wherever they are to wherever the football is that Ole Miss hasn't had at linebacker in a while. Like, what's the difference between Chance Campbell, like in your eyes, when you watch him play? the biggest discernible difference between Chance Campbell and whoever else Ole Miss has had at linebacker for the last three and a half years? Is there one thing that sticks out? Uh, I think it's just reading, diagnosing, and closing space. It's as simple as that. You know, we've had guys who just, you know, physically can't process what's going on and then getting their body in the position to make the play. Or as Chance is a smart kid, he is able to diagnose it, see the gap, see where the ball is going, and just attack. And he does it without thinking. He just does it very instinctually. Haven't had a guy like that since probably the older Kimdichi brother, who is probably not as talented as Chance, but probably got a lot more shit because of his last name than because of his play, because he was actually a really good player. And did Zinni kind of, Phantom was a good player. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. But um, but yeah, I mean, he's just a guy they haven't had there from just a a read and react standpoint in a, in a while. It's it's a, very refreshing to see. <laughs> yeah, oh, uh, oh, Denzel, you're right. Because particularly that 12 team that Freeze had that didn't have a ton of talent, he was a really good player on that 2012 defense. And then just like you mentioned, getting a lot of shit for other things. You know, he was the guy, the radio show I worked for, Sports Talk Mississippi. I wasn't on the show at the time, but they had him on for an interview. And he just fell asleep mid-interview. He started snoring into the microphone or whatever he was talking in on his phone. 
And like Richard Cross, credit to him, handed like a probe. It's just like looked around. I was like, I think this guy fell asleep. And like this, this is still on live radio. So uh, yep. I don't know if Chance Campbell has that in him. If he starts falling asleep in his weekly talks with Neil, then we might really be onto something there from a comp standpoint. <laughs> but great player with a lot of good speed. And then the last thing before we get to some SEC stuff, the Mark Robinson aspect of it, like if Ole Miss had sucked defensively and sucked at linebacker, one of like the – I'm just thinking like in sports writer terms, one of the, like the catchy like kind of scathing lines to write would be like, look, they have a former FCS running back starting at linebacker. What do you expect? But as you kind of hit on last week, he's legitimately good. Like he is a decent SEC linebacker, and it's kind of crazy to think about but just kind of rehashing a little bit what you recapped last week, what do you think makes Mark Robinson good? Cause it is a wild story. Yeah. I mean, he just has the instincts for it. I mean, Summerall, John Summerall used to watch film, always loved a kid that played running back and linebacker. Cause you see it from both sides. You see the running back and where they're supposed to go. The linebacker will be like, Oh, that's where I used to go as a running back. Let me go there as a linebacker. And it's a little more nuanced than just that, of course, but that's part of it. Um, it's kind of a shock, to be honest. I mean, he's a hell of an athlete, so you know you've got that as a plus. The rest just has to do with coaching and is he going to get it immediately and whatnot. So I, he's done really damn well so far, and it's it's really a pleasant sight. A couple of things in the secondary I noticed. One, they played a bunch of dudes. I, the Miles Battle thing where you talked about him being long and athletic, he had a play where they caught a pass interference on him on a ball that he defended in the end zone, which was total horseshit. It was a terrible call. He made a great play defensively, and the referees were, one, very bad. Two, certainly gave the benefit of the doubt to the fact that Ole Miss had better players because Austin P. from what I could tell watching the game again this morning, was allowed to get a lot more physical with Ole Miss's guys than vice versa. Whatever, not making it into a ref thing. But Miles Battle had a couple of good plays, had a couple of not-so-good plays. The question I was actually going to ask was about the uh, the secondary as a whole, and I imagine this is a coaching thing. Ole Miss has gotten a couple pe- defensive pass interferences so far this year with the whole wrist-grabbing move. So if you're if they're four PIs deep, and I would say three of them were definitely based off the risk grabbing thing, is that something they change at all in practice, or do you figure out a way to more effectively get away with it? Because clearly that's something they coach. I know that's somewhat common with playing defensive back as a whole, but it like is. when they're looking at film, what do you do about that, if anything? You just gotta stop. You just gotta see they, these guys are clearly looking at it. They know it's coming. They see it once. They're gonna look for it again. You just you have to stop doing it. You just have to be in better position, you know, with all that you need to do as a DB. You just can't. You just can't keep doing it if they're gonna see it. And so, is that something? That's also I imagine something. If it's a good coach, or the coach gets in the officials' ear early in the game, is like, watch this shit they keep doing. Does that happen? Yeah, it keeps happening. They, they the coaches meet with. Uh, the officials before every game and they're like, Hey, on film, we saw this, this, and this, like, just keep an eye out for it. Maybe that was something they saw in the Louisville. Film. It would absolutely have to be. It had to have been. They're like, Hey, like if they start grabbing wrists, like call it. And like, you know, the rest are just going to be like, you know, screw you. Don't care. No, they're going to see it. And they're going to call it, you know, just got to do something different. Just scroll empty in the chamber here in terms of my notes that Scotty Waldron guy, my God, I'd like to have what he's having in the morning in terms of coffee or whatever the hell he's doing. That man was down 37 to nothing and would have run through a brick wall had you allowed him to. Did you know anything about him? I know he was at Southern for a bit. He's the classic gimmicky energy guy. I mean, their their shirt said chase the lion or some shit on the back. He gave Uh, some some sort of like 
warrior type like move every time his offense came on the field like full of energy do you know anything about him I think it's impressive he has a d1 head coaching job at you know 30 years old 31 it is but my god talk about a walking cliche that guy's a football guy through and through yeah he's very young he seems to have uh taken up on some of the Will Hilly bullshit that some of these younger coaches do. it's a great way to put it yeah I mean I don't understand why they have to do it I, I don't know but <laughs> You know, to both of their credits, they've had real success and they're young and they're getting it done. So clearly it, it works to an extent. Um, I God, if I was like a real program and I had some of those guys as a head coach, I'd just be sick after a while of seeing all that club lit and all that crap. But uh, he's young and he, he'll be good. I mean, he looks it's a kind of a pain to watch, I guess, and a little annoying. But, you know, they respond to it. So that's all that really matters. Yeah, absolutely. And I imagine I say coaching tree, they're not related at all, but the grandfather of that brand of coach is PJ Fleck, right? To an extent. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. I just, I don't know. I find it interesting. I mean, that man's just pacing up and down the sideline, ready to headbutt somebody, and it's 45 to seven or whatever the hell it was, which mad respect to him. I just found that interesting. Last thing, very last thing before we get the SEC stuff. Uh, late in the game, Altmeyer was in. They ran a plumbly sweep that looked really, really sharp. Again, you're talking about facing some Austin P backups. But are you surprised you have not seen a little bit more of that through two games? Is just kind of handing the football off to Plumley and just see what he does getting him a running start? Because that looked really effective when they did it. Yeah, they're going to find ways to get Plumley the ball. It's not going to be gimmicky. It's going to be like this kid's dynamic. Let's figure out a few plays, a few scheme things to get him the ball directly. And, yeah, it looked really good, and I think he's getting more comfortable out there. You, I would expect to see a lot more of that. I think we just about covered any way we could possibly cover. We did a solid hour of podcasting on the Austin P game, so we should probably deserve an award for that alone. Let's bounce on the SEC real quick before we get out of here because this is a larger conversation that Chase and Neil and I had and I'm sure they had it with Jeffrey, too, just on the hand raised guys postgame show last night before it divulged into five different people calling it as Don Kedick. And uh, they clearly had some whiskeys when they did. Um, there's the SEC West, Alabama and who? Because A&M comes in, goes into Boulder, or excuse me, they weren't in Boulder. They were in Denver. They were playing that game in the Broncos Stadium. Really, really struggles with Colorado Haynes King gets injured Zach Calzada comes in again I wasn't locked into this game I actually went to an art exhibit on Saturday morning that was definitely a browning brownie point scoring deal with the girlfriend I, we can get into that later if we really want to but I did watch a decent bit of the second half they just look very bad defensively I mean, excuse me offensively and Colorado had some success stopping a <laughs> run game which really turned them kind of exposed them and I know that's not Ole Miss's greatest strength, but like, man, if you stop AM running the football and they can't do the possession shit, like they're they're very pedestrian. I guess I say all that to say, we'll just start with the macro thought. There's a real case that Ole Miss, even if they're not that good, could end up as the second best team in the West. That's not unrealistic at this point, right? I think you have to look around the West and kind of have that in the back of your mind. I mean, just with the results we have so far, and we'll get into some of the individual, you know, why that happened and whatnot, but I mean, we talked about it before we got on, you know, Ole Miss has to be looking themselves in the face right now. And, you know, you don't want to get ahead of yourself, of course, but and just saying, you know, we have a real opportunity here, you know, is that opportunity to play off? I don't know about that at this point. That's a stretch by a lot, 
But looking at what we have compared to what everyone else has in the West, especially, I mean, being the second best team is no slouch. And I think there's a case to be made that they might be as of today. Yeah, because, I mean, we'll just go through it simply. I mean, if you're picking a day, I'll just put you on the spot. Gun to your head. LSU, they have to come to Oxford. Ole Miss wins that game, right? As of right now, I would say they do. Ole Miss goes to Auburn. Do they win that game? And I know it's hard because Auburn's played two cupcakes. And honestly, the plus side to Auburn, Neil made this point last night, at least Auburn has an identity. At least they know what they are. I have no idea how good they'll be. But, like, you'd probably still wager on Ole Miss winning that one, right? I don't know about that. Okay, I, go away. Zag away. Yeah. Look, I mean, Harson's got a lot to him, you know, Scientology or something. There's some fun rumors about that. But he, he's got a lot going on, but he's a really good football coach. Ole Miss, like, doesn't beat Auburn. They just have not done it in the past. And, you know, history doesn't necessarily always repeat itself. But going to Jordan Air. And let's say you beat LSU. So now you're playing Auburn, you know, you're five and one probably. That's going to be a tough place to win a football game. You know, that's not a guaranteed win by any means. And I'm not a big Bo Nix fan at all, but it's pretty undeniable. They've put up some real numbers against absolutely nobody so far. You'll learn a lot more about them this weekend at Penn State, but that's not a guaranteed win in my book. No, I don't think so either, but I, I guess if you're setting the line today, is that like Auburn minus two or something, like a slight home favorite? Like, I again, I suck at that type of stuff, but, like, sure. that's a game they could certainly win. Tennessee also falls in that category for me as well. I know they lost to Pitt, but if Tennessee finds some sort of momentum in early October and Ole Miss has to go there, that game could get weird. It could definitely get weird. I am very high on what Josh, Josh Heupel can do at Tennessee. I mean, if you just watch that game, like, you know, they've lost so many players in the portal. Like, they are talent deficient. If Joe Milton can figure out how to take, like, six miles an hour off of his deep ball, they might have, like, broken out that game and won it. Like, truly, they might have done that. Um, They're really behind on talent on defense, and they've got a ways to go. But Heupel is a really good football coach, and he knows Levy. He knows Kiffin. If you think he's not going to be ready for that game at Tennessee – then you're wildly mistaken. That's not a guarantee win in my book either. You can't. I mean, Ole Miss has, doesn't have the credibility as a team, as a program, just be like, yeah, we're going to go on the road and beat Tennessee and Auburn handily. Like, that's just not going to happen. You can't look at it that way. And There's really not anyone in the league that has that credibility, except yeah. for Alabama, right? Yeah, I mean, in Georgia. Except for Alabama. And Georgia probably to an extent. Um, in some years, maybe you'd say LSU, but sure as hell not this year. But Yeah, you know, Absolutely. Yeah, I do I think Ole Miss has the talent, ability, and coaching to go beat both those teams? Absolutely. Do I chalk it up as a W as we sit here today? No way. Yeah, no, uh, for sure. But it's kind of weird that Ole Miss is in a place because you think of like the last half decade of the SEC West, you get Ole Miss's schedule every year, and it's okay, you can lost etch one loss in stone, Alabama. I'm just making up examples. I remember the 19 year. They'll probably lose at AM. Okay, here's a toss up. Oh, there's a road game that'll probably be tough. They could win. And that probably in this in this argument is Auburn and Tennessee. Now, other than one game, you could make an argument that you would pick Ole Miss to win every other game left on their schedule. I'm not saying they obviously I don't believe they will, but 
No. It wouldn't be unreasonable or a homer pick to beat to pick Ole Miss to beat Auburn or to beat Tennessee on the road or how at this point AM at home, which is kind of the crux of what we're talking about. There's a real opportunity here for Ole Miss to be, to use a cliche, very ahead of schedule. If they can get kind of the defense continuing to play well, stay healthy there, formulate as much depth as you can, whatever you can do about that in season, there's a real opportunity here. Because, and I guess we'll start, we'll bounce around to each team. We'll start with AM. Clearly, once Haynes King went down, and it, this was probably the strategy, whether he was there or not, they, Colorado, who's not that good, sold no. out to stop the run. And AM looked pretty hapless having to throw the football down the field consistently. And it's one thing to successfully stop the run against AM. You have to have the horses in the scheme to do that, which took. Colorado's credit, they did. I think Isaiah Spiller had like eight carries for like 20 yards or some shit like that. Like AM ran for 97 yards as a team on 29 carries. If you can do that, big if, they look bad. Yeah, they're, I think going back to the overall point, then we'll get to AM. Yeah, there's a real conversation that Ole Miss can win 11 games this year. It's a real one. It's not bullshit. It's not, you know, not. we're all fans and whatnot. Like, it's just – it's a real possibility. And uh, I think that starts with AM. They looked awful against Colorado, who is not good. Colorado is not a good football team. Now, going to Denver, playing a mile high, like, altitude's a real thing. They probably weren't used to it. I don't know what their travel schedule was. But they probably were not fully acclimated. King went down and Calzada comes in. These guys had a real fight for the starting quarterback position. So they have some faith in Calzada. They're probably not having to change their game plan all that much with him coming in. And golly, I mean, just no zip. Just literally, I mean, there's no confidence exuding from that offense at all. And, man, I mean, that, that scheme is just stuck in 2012 as if, you know, Winston is still the quarterback at Florida State. I mean, they have just not upgraded what they're doing scheme-wise on offense. And this is what can happen. If you can't run the ball out of center against a team like Colorado, you sure as hell aren't doing it against most teams in the SEC. They're, they are well-coached and will get better and better and better. Like I mentioned last podcast, I would love to play AM next week. Probably not in November, but shit, they didn't look very good. Yeah, because part of that is also they had to replace four starters on the offensive line, and they didn't look very good on that at on that front as well, and that led to some of their struggles in the run game. You're dead on, though, with Calzada, because I had the same thought. was like, yeah, that was a real quarterback battle to where Haynes King probably got the edge because of what he can do with his feet. And while I don't think they'll change their scheme very much, the most jarring part of that to me was watching Zach Calzada. I think he finished, I have it up right now, 18 of 38. Like, you talk about no zip. It was definitely that. It was like, actually, this kid just is, he can't throw. Like, it's not like, oh, he's been put in an adverse situation. He's getting the shit beat out of him. Like, whatever, give him a, a pass. He couldn't throw. Like, there were multiple balls that were not multiple. There were tons of balls that were just not on target that no. just killed drives for them. And so that's a real, that's something like, again, to your point, you know, the offensive line, if they stay healthy, probably better at the end of the year, be better in the run game, and Calzada will certainly be better. I hope he's not worse. I don't know what King's injury is, but that's winnable on Ole Miss's schedule, and that's a really interesting way to look at the rest of the way because, I mean, how who would have had Ole Miss finishing second in the SEC West in year two under Lane Kiffin? But it's a real possibility. And as we kind of go around the SEC, 
A&M looked pedestrian. But again, you're getting weird results every week in college football. Arkansas was in a 17-17 game with Rice in the fourth quarter last week and just absolutely beat the brakes off of Texas. What, what did you make of that game? I didn't get to watch hardly any of it because of what we had Ole Miss going on. It was on a computer screen in my house, but I'd be lying if I said I was locked into that. I, I honestly, that may have been the most shocking result of the weekend. I thought it might be close, but Arkansas beat the brakes off of them. I'm still not a huge KJ Jefferson believer. I don't think they are either. I mean, how they ran for 300 yards. That's how they won the game. I think KJ Jefferson, yeah, KJ Jefferson, 14 and 19, 138 and a touchdown. Was that just a product, do you think, of Arkansas finding something in the run game and Texas kind of being soft? Uh, I think it's a product of a lot of things. I mean, one, maybe the most hyped Arkansas home game in who knows how long. I mean, that's a real thing. I mean, there is just confidence exuding from that program over having to play Texas. Um, you've got two really damn good coordinators at Arkansas in Bryles and Odom. Is Odom still there, right? I didn't make that up. Yeah. He's great defensive there. coordinator. And then the your point, Kendall Bryce is a great play caller. Right. And he's I mean, those are that might be the best two coordinators in the country, like truly. And Pittman is knows exactly who he is and what he needs to do. They don't have the horses to really compete um yet, because I KJ is probably not going to be it. I think Texas, man, they just could not stop the run game. I mean, they really couldn't. And Arkansas did to them what they did to Ole Miss last year, kind of held them on check on offense and it got out of hand quickly. But again. Arkansas is coming to Oxford. K.J. Jefferson is not going to single-handedly beat this team, and neither are their running game. You know, I, I, that's not a game I'm overly scared of, but they're going to have some confidence. That's They're going to play their ass off for them, and that's something you're going to have to be ready for, but they're not going to compete for second in the West. I left week one – thinking Texas had one of the lower key, more impressive wins of the first week, because I thought that ULL team was good, right? Veteran quarterback. They run the football. Well, they know exactly who they are yep. and Texas for an opponent. Like it's the classic, like, yes, ULL is ranked, but it's ULL across their chest as well. And I thought Texas handled them quite well. And I was actually quite impressed with them Whereas I could not have been any more underwhelmed about what I did see from being able to watch some of it than I was there. Right. What do you, not that it really matters, but they will be in the sec probably next year, uh, barring something weird. What do you make of Texas at all? Because I think they just suck at quarterback. I think that kid got by last week on not having to throw the ball a ton against ULL, but card. And then the Thompson kid, neither one of them were any good. What do you make of Texas? Um, Texas week one was like my favorite line of the whole week was them getting just a touchdown against ULL. And that's not even saying that ULL isn't a good team, but first home game, Sark's a hell of an offensive coach. They're just better at all phases than ULL. Um, quarterback has not been great for them. And I actually like the card kid. I think he has a chance to be a pretty good player, but you know, you're playing in the SEC week two at Arkansas. You know, they probably were really confident coming off of that pretty good win against ULL. I mean, they got the brakes beat off of them. And they're going to – everyone likes to shit on Texas. And I – believe me, I hate Texas as much as anybody. More – not less of their football program but just some of the people that attend that school. But <laughs> – and which is fair, I would say. You live in Dallas. It's fair, too. Um the, Sark is going to get that thing rolling. And if they can find a quarterback that's a pretty good player, um, 
I, I'm they're going to be a tough out in the SEC coming up, but they just were not ready for that game. They just got out coached and outplayed on every level. Couldn't agree more. You talk about the strong coordinators. That's probably a pretty good aspect of it where you have Odom and Bryles who really just kind of had their number there going around elsewhere. We'll get to the, well, why not? Why not? We'll just do the LSU thing now. There's no, I mean, they beat the hell out of McNeese. Good for them. Whatever. It didn't look overly great doing it. So no. I actually, I didn't know this talk showed up at the stadium on Friday. I have an unrelated question for you. I'm going to ask in a second, but Nussmeyer played, I think he ended up three of 10 played at the end. Max Johnson threw three touchdowns, but 161 yards. I had flower mound, whatever the flower mound school is that Nussmeyer went to. I had them on Friday night. Marcus flower mound, flower mound Marcus is what it is. Marcus. That's exactly what it was. So there's flower mound high and flower mound Marcus, right? So I had Marcus on Friday night. Well, actually, I'll just throw the high school question out of the way yet. What is the deal with – so this is the third – I've covered Texas high school football for two years now or a year and a half. But even in just the weeks I've done it so far, this is the third week out of like five where I've had a school where one of the teams is pretty good. They had a sophomore quarterback who was very much better, more polished, a better thrower, and a better all-around talent than the senior – that he was splitting drives with. What is the deal with the weird loyalty to the older kid in Texas high school football? Because Marcus had one. The kid that was a senior, he was not bad. I don't want to shit on him. He was fine. But they had some sophomore who transferred from Argyle who was clearly way more polished, had a hell of an arm, and every time he was in the game, the offense performed better, but they still kept going back to the senior. That's happened four times. Why do they do that? So that's a fascinating question that I actually have a really good answer to. Hell yes. It's, Thank you. It's so I'll bring it to Westlake. Okay. So Westlake has a kid named Cade Klubnick, who is a senior now who's going to Clemson. When I was doing Klubnick's sophomore film, they won, they went like almost undefeated or whatever. And he was splitting time with not one quarterback, but two. This kid was a <laughs> four star, five star kid as a sophomore. World, world's better than the other two guys. They played all three of them. It just must be some Texas high school dynamic where they just don't give up on the older kids. I don't know if it's some, you know, mojo something from Permian. I have no idea what the hell is going on with those places. But it happens all the time, unless it's Quinn Ewers. They're these guys, they play multiple quarterbacks if they even have a semblance of an ability to throw the football. Klubnik was like the weirdest thing ever where this kid – I mean, Westlake is a legendary high school program, and I get they have lots of talents there and quarterbacks transfer in there to play. But it's like, who gives a shit? Play the guy who's going to Clemson next year, and, like, maybe you win a state championship. I, it's weird. It's weird that you brought that up because I was thinking while you're asking the question, like, I've seen this before. I don't understand why they do it. Okay, I'm glad we're on the same page with this because I, I got so frustrated. I mean, I stopped asking the whatever the high school equivalent of a sports information director is. But two weeks ago, and neither one of these kids are uh, Division One prospects, but I had Mansfield Legacy or something where they yeah. one of the schools, they had a decent senior, and then they had a kid that was a junior who was way better and could run. And I just asked around in the press box, and they're like, yeah, well, you know, he's a senior. And I was like, your point? Like, I'm, I'm not following. Like, I don't understand. Why not play the kid that's better every drive? Like, could you, they considered that part of it. I, I don't understand. It's weird, but it's absolutely a real thing, though, right? It happens. I mean, I've seen it three times in five weeks. I don't understand it, but that definitely is a thing. It doesn't make any sense to me. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's why all these kids go to Texas and they're like, well, you know, I got to play when I was a senior at a wherever and they, they're all entitled and shit. So that's probably why they still are that way when they get to Texas. I have no idea. It's a weird deal. That's very off the beaten path for this podcast, but it's a real thing for those who give a shit about Texas high school football. I finally get uh, South Lake Carroll next week, so I'm looking forward to going out there. But anyway, reeling this back into the SEC conversation because we get we get out of here and turn this into yet another two-hour podcast. Yeah. Nothing you saw probably from LSU is going to change your thinking on it, but do you think that Max Johnson lasts the entire year at quarterback? I think this, is, this could potentially, not for him, but just in general, go south in a hurry for this entire program. Yeah, so I didn't get to watch a lot of the LSU game because of the wedding or whatnot. Um, but supposedly they looked like absolute dog shit again. <laughs> like they didn't look great. Good. It, I mean, it was bad. And, you know, Mindy State is not a good team this year, at least. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, they love this Nussmeyer kid. And, you know, I liked his film out of high school. Not much of a world beater. I didn't think he and Altmeyer, he and Altmeyer were, were pretty similar prospects, in my opinion. And I think that was a pretty much a shared opinion. Maybe Nussmeyer has gotten a little bit better or whatnot. But, man, I mean, if the LSU did this last year, whenever Brennan got hurt and TJ Finley came in and played like a world beater against a shit South Carolina team, and then they're like, oh, like, I don't care about Brennan anymore. Like, TJ, like, he's the guy. Like, he's good. Then they went and played A&M, and he threw, like, four interceptions. They're like, oh, I hate this guy. You know, let's try Max Johnson out. And then Johnson played well against two more shit defenses and – Florida and LSU, and they're like, oh, he's a world beater. And then comes to UCLA, plays bad. Oh, let's go for Nussmeyer. You know, it's just a whirlwind cycle of nonsense. It, like, Johnson is a pretty good quarterback. Like, there's, you can't create your own quarterback controversy, you know, with this Nussmeyer kid. So I would assume Johnson takes the reins the rest of the season. But, you know, if they want to mess it up even more than they already have in that room, sure, throw in Nussmeyer against – Central Michigan next week, and, you know, I'm sure he'll play well against that team too. Florida goes on the road and beats South Florida, who lost like 45 to nothing or some shit to NC State in the first week. Florida seems like a team with a lot of good players across the board, and they just don't have a difference maker at quarterback to make them a real threat. Yeah, they might be playing the wrong one. You know, I think okay. this, this Richardson kid seems to be more dynamic than Jones. Um. I think both of them aren't that great, but Mullen is a really good coach and, you know, he knows what he's doing with the quarterback position. If he knows anything, that's one thing he does know. Um, I'm just not high on that team overall. I think the defense is pretty average. I think Grantham is way past his time. Um, South Florida is a bad football team and they didn't, you know, they beat him pretty handily, but they didn't look especially daunting doing it. Um, Florida is a, they're a team that's going to lose by like three touchdowns to Alabama and they might keep it close to the first half, but I don't see them as a big threat to Georgia either. Um, they can improve and, you know, they have real talent, like you said, across the board, but I, I don't find them overly threatening by any means. If there is a team in the SEC that could actually kind of compete with Alabama this year, it seems to be Georgia, particularly what they have on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah. Mass rush and all of that. Do you see them as a real threat to Alabama? And one, actually, I'll, we'll go with that one first. Do you think they could actually compete with Alabama in the SEC title game? Um, compete, yes. I think that defense is is legit. It's a defense that probably 
we haven't seen in college football in probably a while. You know, a lot of these defenses, the new offenses just aren't the same, but this Georgia one's real. They're, they're going to be a problem. You know, I this is not a homer thing, but if there's any two teams that really can take on Bama, it's going to be Georgia and just from a God, this team is going to be tough to beat is Ole Miss, you know. Those that I do not think Ole Miss is going to beat Alabama on the road. But if you get said, who are the two teams that you think could beat Alabama? It would be Georgia one because of the defense and improving offense. And then Ole Miss because they're just going to be a pain in the ass to stop. And the one team you did not put in there is Texas A&M, which roster wise has a better roster than Ole Miss. Obviously, probably not Georgia, but it is kind of even. But with the whole quarterback and one dimensional offensive thing, I'm kind of with you. I, I don't agree with them being able to beat Alabama you know there was a I could have talked myself into that October 9th or whatever the hell that week game is where Alabama goes to College Station but I, I just don't see it anymore I, I don't yeah I, I can't see it they're 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 not dynamic enough on offense they're not good enough on the defensive line I mean Colorado like really ran against them they couldn't finish drives well but they really consistently ran the ball against them I just – I do not see it. Uh, Alabama has thrashed them in College Station the past three or four times since they've been there, since Johnny beat them. I, I don't see it. I just do not fathom – cannot fathom uh, Calzada or King beating that Alabama team. South Carolina goes on the road, beats ECU. I think that was a last-second field goal, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Cool story with that Zeb Nolan kid. I don't think South Carolina is any good, but – They'll lose next week, but they actually would have a real shot. So they get Kentucky at home and then Troy after that. I don't think there's a bye week mix there in between. And then at Tennessee and then Vanderbilt, if shit breaks the right way, South Carolina could be like five or six and one and not be very good. Now, granted, they get AM and Florida after that, and then a road game at Missouri and then Auburn and Clemson. Like it'll come, the bill will come due. Yeah. But you could kind of have a little plucky South Carolina squad. Have you watched any of them at all? I admit I have not hardly at all. But they yeah, don't seem awful. Yeah, I watched a little bit of the second half. I actually think East Carolina isn't terrible. They're not a terrible football team. They usually have been. But this this year, I think they beat App State week one or should have beat App State week one, either one or the other. I'll watch a little bit. You know, Beamer, I don't think he's going to take that team overly far in his tenure there. But they play hard for him, and, you know, they like him, and they seem to have at least a little bit of momentum. I see no way that team beats Kentucky. Kentucky's real. They're they're good. Um, but yeah, they could end up being a, a really bad five and one team. I think Ole Miss in 18 was like five and one, then lost six in a row. You know, it happened. Great yeah. That's <laughs> where I was going. That's right. That was a comparison I was gonna make. They, that that Arkansas game and that that rock fight in the rain in Little Rock, one of the I think Ole Miss left that either five and two and five and one. And it was like, how did this happen now? Yeah. So I mean, this is the way the schedule does, but uh I actually kind of I find myself semi-cheering for Beamer. I don't understand why, but I, I've changed hearts on him a little bit. Uh, Kentucky beats Missouri 35-28 at home. That game is actually probably a little closer than I thought it would be, but I think Kentucky has a real argument for finish second in the East. Competent quarterback and Will Levis, or Levis, however the how you say the kid's name. That's exactly what they needed, though, right? They were a good roster otherwise. They just needed competent quarterback play. He didn't have a great game in this one. They only let him throw it 18 times. That's probably because that Rodriguez kid had, like, 200 yards on the ground. But they could actually – they won't beat Georgia. But would you be shocked if Kentucky finished second in the West? I think they're pretty good. Where do they play Georgia? 
They played Georgia. Hold on, let me pull this up. Got it. I think I, I want to say, unfortunately, it's in Athens. It is in Athens, October sixteenth. Damn, I really wish they were playing them in Lexington. Uh they. I think that's the second best team in the East. Uh, I wish I got to see more of that game. Because um, Missouri, I mean, they they're well coached. They're not a bad football team. The Basilac kid's a pretty good player. I know they struggle with Central Michigan Week One, but like we've seen in, in college football, that seems to be kind of happening here and there. They're just they're just well God. I mean, they're so well coached. They play so hard. They finally have a competent quarterback to where if they need to throw the ball more than they want to, they can do it and be confident in it. Offensive line's good. Defensive line plays well. Th- that would be the team. No, I don't think they can beat Georgia. But I think they can beat Florida, and I think they can beat South Carolina and will beat South Carolina. And then the other two teams, Tennessee and Vanderbilt, they're so lost, you know. <laughs> I think that's the second-best team in the East by not a lot, but I think they are. I generally roll my eyes at the doesn't get enough credit deal or whatever. And because we always do that about the guy that just is not in the mainstream headlines, whereas half the time it's actually like, yeah, he's actually gotten plenty of credit. Stoops has built a great program there for what they are. I think he's just about maximized what they are. Is his reputation among coaching circles better than maybe the general public leads it to be? You know, that's a good question. Uh, I think he's got real credit. I think he likes where he's at. Not, I mean, there's pressure to win there. It's still SEC football, but you're at a basketball school and everyone knows it. And that's a real, can be a real detriment, but they've built really good facilities there. He has hired really good coaches. I mean, uh, obviously I'm, you know, very biased towards Summerall, but their defensive coordinator is a really good coach as well. Um, He got this guy from the Rams, you know, that's been a, a trend in college, getting some NFL guys that aren't exactly offensive coordinators, but they have the ability. And McVeigh gave a startling, you know, approval of him as a coach. And, I mean, it's clearly worked. They are from night and day different offensively they were last year. He's he's the real deal. I, I don't even know if he'd leave for anywhere. Like, why would you? You're going to win eight games there, seven games, eight games. Hell, this year maybe you, you know, go crazy and win nine and you're going to be making four or five million dollars a year. He's he's done a great job there. I don't know what the industry reputation is. Um, is someone like Michigan, if they have another flundering season, is that someone they look at? I don't know. But he he's a great coach. And everyone I know that knows him, don't I don't know about coaching-wise, but likes him as a guy. Last one, would you like to figure out Vanderbilt? They lost 23-3 to ETSU and then just went and beat Colorado State on the road. What I, I think that Clark Lee guy is a good coach. I think he has a lot of challenges to overcome. The obvious ones are roster, the, all of that, like what he has to do with what he has, but yeah. also an administration that you never really know of actually has your back. What, what do you think of them so far? Because that none, of the, none of what they've done so far has made any sense. No, it, it hasn't. I think it has, says a lot more about – Colorado State, they Urban Meyer for some reason was able to influence them hiring Steve Adazio. And yeah, I don't know if you remember that story or not. Uh, I remember that where Urban was just like, Yeah, he's my guy. It's like, How, why, how, like, what? Why on earth does college Colorado State give a shit what Urban Meyer has to say? I mean, he's another heartache away from heading on back to USC after this shit. I mean, they look no kidding. horrible today. He is going to have the worst chest pain whenever they have to play like the Colts or somebody or the Chiefs. Could you imagine? 
his embolism when they have to play the Chiefs. I mean, there's no faking it in the NFL, too. People are going to be like, what the, what the hell's this guy deal? What yeah, this guy's I, deal? Talk about no, someone with like the least amount of accountability in sports right now has to be Urban Meyer. I mean, what? And they already come out like he has like temper tantrums. That was a disaster. And you could have seen that coming. Um, I think Clark Lee's a pretty good coach. He's very well spoken. He's a smart guy. He He's happy to be at Vanderbilt. You know, he's a grad. You know, that's not the most impossible place to recruit, like, quality players at. Um, they're never going to compete. They're never going to do what James Franklin did, you know, that because Georgia's too good now. Kentucky's relevant. Missouri's relevant. They'll never get to that level. But, man, I mean, he, he can get them to a bowl game here and there, you know. That kid playing quarterback for them is not bad. I was no. impressed with him in an 0-11 season, if that's possible. He's Ken Seals. He's pretty good. He's not a terrible quarterback at all. I mean, I don't know how they lost to East Tennessee State. I obviously did not watch one second of that football game. But but Seals can make some throws. He's not terrible by any means. We just rolled through all the SEC. I'll let you. We, we're going to go almost two hours again. I know we're ready to get out of here, but any NFL thoughts? I, I had a great day watching it. The Titans were terrible. Your Saints looked incredible. Yeah. Uh, don't doubt Pittsburgh. Maybe Big Ben's not dead yet. They didn't look great offensively, but, you know, some special teams, some defense here and there. Yeah, Mike Tomlin's never gone less than 500, and that will probably continue. Uh, Kyler Murray looks like he should look. Tennessee might be bad this year. on de- defense. Uh, Murray looks phenomenal. Josh Allen, not a great day. Uh, I just saw the, you know, Matt Nagy doesn't want to, keep his job because he decides he's going to play with Andy Dalton. Yeah. So that's, that's a decision, you know, on national television to tell your entire franchise, you just don't care about winning. Um, he, and he, he does bad shit like that in terms of national messaging. There was a Monday night game two years ago where he benched Mitch for Foles, basically blaming the loss on Mitch, even though the play calling was atrocious. I'm not a Mitch guy, but I, I met Nagy as an NFL coach. I don't really understand it. Yeah, no, he uh, he started off hot and has just slowly but surely taken his uh, him, himself out by himself. I mean, they, they're not good. Um, they were a playoff team last year, weren't they? Didn't they have to play the Saints, technically? Yeah. and if Nicky, like, knew how to coach, they might have actually beaten us. We played yeah. their game, and, you know, he was just, like, doing some of the dumbest shit ever. It was terrible. I got to say, biggest disappointment of the day might have been Atlanta because – I know Saints-Falcons robbery, but I like Arthur Smith. I think he's a good coach. Um, them being as incompetent as they were offensively, again, week one, rear results, but that was really disappointing. I thought they would actually be kind of fun. I didn't know if they'd be any good defensively, but they were atrocious on offense. God, you know, you really hate to see it, don't you? You do. I bet y'all do. I bet everyone in listening to this hates to see it. All right, but in a non-biased opinion, I think they should have drafted a quarterback at four uh, instead of Pitts. Um, or an offensive lineman. That offensive line is terrible. Um, Arthur Smith's a really good coach, and they hired away a Saints guy to be their GM, so I'm fully confident he'll figure it out there. Uh, I think they're on the upswing. The Eagles are a bad football team. and they got Yes, they're not good. And they got the crap beat out of them by them. So they're maybe they're going to get corralled. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they're, they're going to be picking high again because I tell you what, they're not beating the Saints. Not beating the Bucks and Carolina, you know, they didn't look great today, but they sure as hell look better than the Falcons. They're well coached defensively, and Darnold will end up being fine. We can get more into the NFL stuff as more of the season goes on on these Sunday yeah. nights when we know more about him. But the last thing I did want to ask you was 
I was more high on the Tua being fine this year than most of the NFL, I would say, circles were, because a lot of the NFL people do not watch college football. And seeing last year, there ended up being a weird front office dynamic where the owner and I think the GM maybe wanted to see Tua where Brian Flores and the on-field staff was like, actually, Fitz has been fine for us. We want to keep doing it. And eventually the front office won. But even by their own admission, I listened to a podcast this summer, the former – I forget the guy's name, the former offensive coordinator who got fired from the Dolphins, basically admitted, was like, yeah, we didn't change anything when Tua came in. We didn't do anything to suit his strengths. We just ran the offense as it was. People were kind of out on Tua even like after half a year. You watched him in college. I watched him in college. Not that I think he'll be like a, you know, nine-time pro bowler, but that kid's a hell of a lot better than what was shown on film over seven, nine games last year. I think the Dolphins are going to be good. What do you make of Tua in the Miami situation? I thought that was more coaching than him last year. So I thought what they did last year, whether they meant to do it or not, was brilliant. You know, bring in Tua. Yeah, I know you just – you have so much draft capital if you're the Dolphins. Bring him in, play him. If he's bad – guess what? That means you're going to lose a lot of football games and you can take another quarterback. They decided not to do that. So they must have a semblance of confidence in him. They went with Waddle, um, who looks like he's going to be a hell of a player. Um, I don't know. I mean, scouts loved Tua. I think some football coaches didn't. I think they didn't love that he's a lefty. I think they didn't, which was a weird dynamic asking scouts about that. I don't think they loved his size. He is not big. Um, he's also not athletic enough in the NFL to run for anything. Whereas in college, you know, he can kind of make some stuff happen with his feet. I, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see. I know they've been talking about this Deshaun Watson's crap, man. If you're a team and you trade for Deshaun Watson right now, you should be fired immediately. It's Everyone not a, it's not a, it's not an Antonio Brown just beat away the bad oh. headlines. That's real. No, this is real. And now, now Brown, that's kind of real too. But yes, <laughs> no, it absolutely is real. But like, you, I, I didn't mean this is real, real and happening as we speak and yes. is an ongoing legal matter. And he seems like a huge piece of shit. So, which is a shocking was- move, right? Like, you thought he was like that kid, like your parents wish you were for like a couple of years there. Yeah. And a hell of a quarterback. So, I understand why at least people are entertaining it. Uh, I love to. I mean, he's a great kid. And did they win the game today? They did. They beat the Patriots in Foxborough. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think he's going to have a chance to be a pretty good player. And Flores is a great coach. I think he's in a great spot. So, we'll see. Last, last thing before I actually let you get some sleep. I Googled the EPL standings during your last answer. Um, oh, yes, you did. Is you this did. is this accurate? My my Brentford, or do they have a mascot? What are they? Is that a bee? What do we got going on they're, here? They're the bees. I think they lost their first game this weekend. I just I could honestly be a zookeeper. I diagnosed that tiny ass logo pretty well. That I'm seeing three goals for that that what's the analytics on that? That seems less than ideal. Uh they've only allowed point. two, but three goals four in four matches does not seem great. Uh it's not great. I think they but they were you know undefeated. They had tied won their first game, tied the next one, and that they lost this last one. What what position are they in? Where are we at? They are tenth currently but yeah. i'm seeing other clubs there's a west ham sounds like a sandwich um man city man united They're, i'm seeing teams with nine ten eleven goals and three is concerning 
Uh, I would say it's a little concerning, but their analytics base, you know, small sample size, they'll figure it out. Uh, now the team at top, you know, Man United had a Ronaldo comeback on Saturday morning where he scored two goals in his first match back. I think we are at the top of the league right now, if I have that correctly. Are we? That is Chelsea? correct, yes. Yeah. Uh, nice we, flex. We are, I guess if you're a sports fan, much watch TV right now. You must, okay. must watch Ronaldo and United play. It's as fun as it gets. And uh, back from the international break, Champions League is starting on Tuesday. So there's going to be a lot of soccer coming up for those who care about it. So uh, just last like, interesting question here. Arsenal, I know that's a pretty good club. I've heard yeah. their names before. They've played four matches and they have one goal. Can you fire an offensive coordinator in soccer? Who is getting beheaded there for scoring one goal in like 300 minutes of action? Their manager, Mikel Arteta, who was uh, a player for them a while back. He was an assistant coach at City. Um, go watch the Amazon Prime All or Nothing on Manchester City. You'll see a lot of him. Uh, they are a dumpster fire right now. They are LSU-esque having a season right now. I like uh, that. I mean, they're like, they won their first match this weekend against Norwich, who sucks. Um, they're in, like, real trouble. They, they're, they're a top-six club by money, fame fan base in London, but they're bad right this year. They're really, really bad. He is Weldon Rodenberg. He is our soccer correspondent. He knows a thing or two about football, American football, that is, as well. So we keep having him around on the podcast after we get done with our APL talk. I appreciate it, dude. The uh, This has been fun. We'll, uh, we'll hang around next week. Maybe do some SEC preview stuff on, like, Thursday, Friday type of deal as we get closer to conference play and stuff. But uh, I appreciate the time. Got any, uh, any last words? No, I got to go to bed. I'm tired. <laughs> I appreciate you staying up late with me. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another edition of the Rippy Rides podcast. Like and subscribe. We'll be back. Probably have some two-lane guys on Wednesday. Get Greg's picks, all that good shit. Y'all have a good night, and uh, appreciate it. I'll talk to you soon. See you. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.